The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Alan Graham. He is the founder, president, and CEO of Mobile Loaves and Fishes, a social profit enterprise based in Austin, Texas, that delivers meals to homeless and working poor people on the streets of Austin and San Antonio, Texas, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Nashville, Tennessee, and soon Providence, Rhode Island. Additionally, Mobile Loaves and Fishes has developed a 51-acre master-planned community with a total of more than 500 affordable homes and a supportive community which provides housing to the chronically homeless. I was able to visit the Community First Village outside of Austin city limits during the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in April of 2022, and I was so impressed with the community that I knew I wanted to bring Mr. Graham's voice to Food Sleuth Radio listeners. Welcome, Alan. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Melinda, for inviting me on. Well, your story is very interesting. You were a successful real estate investor and developer. You were the founder of Trilogy Development and of the Linux Group, which developed Austin's airport cargo facility. That sounds like a high power, probably stressful job. What was it that led you to focus on the homeless? Well, Melinda, I ended up kind of on a little spiritual journey. It wasn't ever meant to take me where I am right now. But, uh, you know, I was just trying to figure out, like a lot of us, you know, what what are the good things that I'm going to do in my life? And, look, I really enjoyed the real estate development side of the business. I was having a blast. It really wasn't all that stressful looking back in hindsight. But I had this kind of spiritual epiphany that I wanted to do something more. And... One thing led to another, and I came up with this idea of going out on the streets of Austin, Texas, in a catering truck and feeding men and women where they are. And uh, that just blew up in a, in a completely positive way to the point where we planted catering trucks all over the United States and, uh, and began to feed people right where they were, on the street corners, underneath the bridges, in the alleyways. And that's kind of how that started. Well, how was that initial project funded? A hundred percent privately. I mean, uh, you know, I threw money in. I had a few buddies that were throwing some money in to the deal. And then as we began to garner and gain momentum, you know, this is an extraordinarily attractant to volunteers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so people would come on board and then they'd begin to share their treasure with us. And in essence, this organization, which has actually raised a few hundred million dollars since its inception, is money all raised privately. Well, one of the things that I thought was so impressive to me was that there was a video online that showed you speaking about the mobile trucks that went out. And you said something really interesting. You said that 
the people serving the food were on the same side of the truck as the people receiving the food. That must have been a great equalizer. Well, for us, Melinda, it was a game changer. Understanding that, we didn't know that going in, and it wasn't something that was intentional on our part. But when you think about people that live in extreme poverty, and particularly people that are homeless, they're all being herded to these soup kitchens. And this isn't an indictment on soup kitchens. We love soup kitchens. But they walk up to a window and they get their food unit, you know, from the soup kitchen and then they go sit down and, uh, and eat their meal. But from a food truck, those that are serving and those being served are on the same side of the serving counter. And that, that created this one-on-one, human-to-human, heart-to-heart connection. And that was really an aha moment for all of us that, you know, what people need more than anything is connection. Mm-hmm. And the food really became the conduit uh, to that intimate connection. That's right. And I remember when you were speaking to the Association of Healthcare Journalists, you said it was food that was the great initiator of this project and that food connects heart to heart. Well, when you think about us as humans, you know, what connects us? You know, when you went on your first date with someone, it was most probably around food or drink, some level of hospitality. And, um, you know, it's not things like sex or going to a movie. It's really sitting down and breaking bread. And that understanding really, in a lot of ways, led to the development of the Community First Village, which is built around food. The first thing that we ever did within the Community First Village was build the farm. That was number one out there, producing food. And then when people came out here, uh, we gathered around the outdoor metaphorical table to enjoy the food that was being produced on the land, but more importantly, to enjoy each other's company. Yeah. It is a beautiful village, and I can't tell you how many of us just in passing said to each other, wow, I want to live here. It is a beautiful, homey, creative, artsy community, and you wouldn't have any idea that this was a community of formerly homeless people. It has a really positive vibe to it, and I commend you for creating this. I don't think it probably was easy to get the land and to get this community established. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that happened? Well, it was... um... It was difficult. The journey was a challenge, but as I look back on it, the journey was really pretty joyful. And uh, But to do something like this is going to cause quite a bit of controversy, especially from the not-in-my-backyard people. Exactly. Because there are are stereotypes that are built around certain people. And homelessness, which happens to have a level of diversity that's unprecedented in my human experience. It has black people, brown people, white people, yellow people, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Zoroastrians. It has LBGTQ and uh, uh, binary. Uh, you know, it just everything is within that population. And there are all these stereotypes in the world around these men and women, and plus drug addicts and alcoholics and 
people battling mental health issues and people that have been incarcerated. And you put all this into uh, one single cocktail, and it seems to create a level of fear amongst people that we don't want, in quotes, in quotes, these people in my backyard. So we, we had to overcome that. But the Not in My Backyard movement is typically centered around what we call discretionary land use planning, or commonly known as zoning. But in the state of Texas, there is no zoning in the counties outside of any municipal boundary. And that turned out, Melinda, to be a game changer for us. I see. So you had to find some land on which to build the first phase of this project. And you couldn't do it within the city limits. And certainly it wouldn't have been affordable to even acquire land How did you find the parcel of land that became the First Communities Project? Well, we we attempted to collaborate with the city of Austin. Our city has thousands of acres of land that it owns that is not being used. And so we worked with our city for several years from about 2005 up until 2010, attempting to do something inside the city limits. And constantly came up against the not-in-my-backyard wall. And then when I finally gave up on that strategy, I went to the University of Texas and got a graduate architecture class that was, you know, that was a geographical information system, a GIS class, and said, would you guys take on as a project helping me find the real estate that we want? And I laid out all the parameters. And at the end of the semester, they provided me with about 10 tracts of land. And I went out, looked at all of them, and then ultimately chose the one that we are on. So the land that you're on right now is on a bus route. I'm assuming that that was a critical factor in choosing that parcel? Well, it was not on a bus route, Melinda, when we uh, bought and developed this land. That was really the last piece of the puzzle. But my philosophy was is I wanted to be reasonably close to public transportation, and I felt that strategically I could solve that last little bit, which turned out to be about a mile, knowing that our public officials would not want to have a community of highly vulnerable people that they were willing to refuse to provide public transportation. So I used a little nuance to get us around uh, – the bend on that one. Well, it's marvelous that individuals living in the community can go get on a bus, it's very convenient, and get into town for anything that they might need. But so much of what they could possibly need is right there in the community. And I have a long list of the features that make this community so ideal and appealing. The one or two things that I want to bring forth first of all, is the organic farm. As you mentioned earlier, to be able to produce nourishing food just a stone's throw away from where you live, and you've got a free farmer's market. So people are paid a dignity wage to work on the farm, and then the produce is given to people who come to the market. Yeah, and so I have nearly a quarter of a century of working with the men and women on the streets. And... um you know, and like any aging 
part of the population, I battle the aging things that are going to happen to me. Uh, high blood sugar, uh, high blood pressure. But I have the ability to manage those issues extremely well. I'm able to go to the doctor, get the medications that I need to do that. I have a level of understanding about the food that's going to have a negative impact to those things. And uh, when you're on the streets, your diet is essentially a McDonald's-level diet. And this isn't a condemnation of McDonald's. Uh, you can do with McDonald's. I mean, I, I like a burger every now and then. But you can't eat that stuff every day, three times a day. And so this is what people who live in extreme poverty, the homeless, are subject to. They don't have much money. They can't afford free-range organic chicken eggs at seven or eight bucks a dozen, or grass-fed beef, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they're eating Cheetos and Happy Meals and French fries and fried foods and all the all the cheap stuff, and it's killing them. And what I wanted to be able to do was create, and, and then plus that that kind of food has a negative impact not only on your physical health, but on your mental health. You're ultimately going to end up having extreme dental problems as a result of that food, and extreme dental problems lead to choices of eating food that you, you know, like you can't eat an apple That's right. when you don't have teeth. That's yeah. right. And so I wanted to create an environment out here that began to transform that. And it's not 100%, but my feeling is is that if I can change your diet by 10 or 15%, that really begins a movement towards a more holistic way of living and a healthier uh, and a mental healthier way of living. That's where that all came from. And of course, I could not agree more. And I'm so glad that you are sensitive to the critical impact that food has, as you say, not only on physical, but also mental health. Mr. Graham, we have to take one break because we are halfway through. I just need to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Alan Graham. He is the founder, president, and CEO of Mobile Loaves and Fishes, a social profit enterprise based in Austin, Texas. He also is the brains behind Communities First Village, which is outside of Austin city limits. And I had a chance to visit an impressive community that is serving the chronically homeless. It's not just food, Alan. It's also the fact that you have, as you say, recognized that all of us have a desire to have a purpose and we all have skills. And so in addition to providing homes, and I should say that people have to pay rent for these homes, but in addition to providing affordable housing, you've got jobs with dignity wages, you've got the organic farm, you've got a wood shop, a blacksmithing shop, an art house, car care. You have given individuals an ability to create micro-enterprise opportunities, and I can't imagine how that in itself would lift people up out of depression. Well, I moved to Austin, Texas in 1976 out of the Houston area to go to the University of Texas. And when I left Houston and arrived in Austin in June of 76, there were no panhandlers on our street corners anywhere. Wow. In any city in the United States. 
there were men and women that were selling bottles of waters, newspapers, flowers, cow skulls, cow skins, and velvet Elvis art. And, uh, and in America, we have outlawed all that or made the occupational licensing requirements to do those things so prohibitive that people who live in extreme poverty cannot do those things. And that, that has left the only remaining bastion of entrepreneurialism, the First Amendment free speech right to beg, as their only opportunity. And um, I think about somebody that I've gotten super infatuated with. His name is Vincent Van Gogh, who started painting when he was 27 years old and committed suicide at 37, was arguably one of the most, the least successful artists ever sold one painting during his lifetime of painting, that 10-year period of time, was by all accounts a complete failure, but had a brother that supported him and loved him and cared for him and believed in him. And today you would probably be lucky to buy a piece of his art for 50 million bucks. And many of his paintings, Melinda, were done, of his masterpieces were done in the last couple of years of his life while he was inside of an insane asylum. And so I began to realize that inside many of the women that are on the streets are these extraordinary giftings, and we need to figure out a way collectively as a society uh, how to mine those giftings for purposeful work, hence uh, all of the things that you mentioned earlier. And we have some extraordinary artists uh, on this campus and uh, and people who want to work and want to be purposeful and they don't want to uh, beg for money if we allow them to make money in a, in a legitimate uh, way. So that that's how that all came about. And then you've also got a health resource center for people to meet their basic health care needs. You've got outdoor kitchens where people can come together, cook together, eat together, develop that kind of community that comes, as you say, with breaking bread. And then you also mentioned that everything in the village is designed to build community and how homelessness is really connected to this catastrophic, profound loss of family, because that's our safety net. Yeah, uh, both, you know, the nuclear family, but our forge family as well. And, you know, we in, as Americans have become pretty disconnected from each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've become disconnected from our food source. There was a study done one time with children to tell us what tasted more like a strawberry. Mm. Was it a real strawberry or a Twizzler? Oh. And, and the Twizzler overwhelmingly won. Uh, And, and, you know, children were also asked, you know, where did chicken come from? And the answer was in little packages that grew on a tree. And, you know, this is a little on the scary side because even though I might like Twizzlers, I really like strawberries a whole lot better. So, Right. Well, you give people an opportunity to taste good food and to enjoy it. And I'm assuming that the health conditions that individuals come to the communities with, you probably have seen drastic changes in improvements. Yeah, we do. 
they're not overnight changes. No. Uh, it takes a while uh, for people to establish new habits. But when you give people, you know, an opportunity to gather and connect, and in those outdoor kitchens that you mentioned, we believe that we have more potlucks per capita than in anywhere in the world here. Right. Uh, and so it's all about people gathering, coming out of their small, tiny homes, hanging out with each other, and uh, hopefully breaking bread with each other and doing the things that we humans like to do, which is gather and hang out. Well, let's talk about the community itself, because I want people to have an image in their heads. And of course, I'll provide a link so you can see some of the beautiful tiny houses. Who designed the infrastructure and the street design? You've got it so that houses face each other and there are porches where people can sit outside and and greet each other. Who designed that? Well, you know, this is like, I mean, so many different people came together to do this. And so the idea stemmed from the idea of building an RV park, like a KOA, a campground of America. That was my original idea. And then who can I invite in to this vision to help me figure out how to get something like this across the finish line? And along the way, a great architect friend of mine, his name is Mac Holder, came in and looked at our original engineered site plan done by engineers who like to work in 90-degree and 45-degree angles (laughs) and said, hold it a minute. Uh, We need to do something different here. May I take a stab at this deal? And he began to develop for us the tiny home village model that you see, the weaving and winding pathways with the homes that all have front porches, no back doors, no backyards. And so in reality, the development of this was very organic with a myriad of different people coming to the table and bringing their gifts and talents, whether it was design whether it was layout, whatever it was, bringing those gifts and talents to the table that has created. And then we continue to learn. This is a, a learning process. We we tell people, Melinda, that we're building a 747 in flight. <laughs> right. I remember you telling our group that, well, you've got a great start. And I'm thrilled to know that there's a phase two now in development I was doing some research for this interview, and I wanted to look up what the National Alliance to End Homelessness had to say about why are people homeless, and why do we have so much homelessness in our country of such great wealth? And I saw several leading causes. One was the lack of affordable housing. And in Austin, I know that that is becoming increasingly a problem, Unemployment and poverty, of course, they go hand in hand oftentimes. Mental illness and substance abuse for which there are no services. So people with mental illness perhaps before might have gone into a hospital for compassionate care. Now the way we deal with mental illness is we put people in jail, which can't be good for anyone's mental health. And then, of course, there are the challenges of being homeless, things like chronic sleep deprivation. So if you're not mentally challenged originally, I would think that it wouldn't take long just being sleep deprived to develop some mental challenges along the way. Well, we're not here to argue with the uh, National Alliance to End Homelessness. Our, Our belief 
is that the single greatest cause is the profound catastrophic loss of family and the Forge family, the loss of community. Yes. Because within your family, uh, Melinda, and every family that is listening to this podcast, you have a drug addict, an alcoholic, or somebody battling a mental health issue, somebody that's lost a job, all of the things that you mentioned. And then we as family or a Forge family manage to come up underneath them and provide that safety net. Now, all of those issues that you mentioned will exacerbate someone that finds himself homeless, but in my humble opinion, they're not the root cause to that homelessness. So those are profound issues of justice, but again, we don't believe at Mobileos and Fishes that they're the causal factor. And, um, and, and if you bring back the Forge family, hard to bring back the nuclear family, but if you can bring back that Forge family, it gives you a shot at dealing with the poverty of wages, uh, affordable housing, uh, mental health issues, addiction issues, uh, physical health issues, on and on. Right. Those are all symptoms of a broken society, I think. And you know, from a dietitian's perspective, I've often thought, after my decades of experience doing this work, is that what people are hungriest for is really connection. And I think that explains the power and the extensive growth that we've seen of, say, farmers markets, because people not only get good food, but they also get to connect with their fellow community members, as well as the people who produce the food. Yeah, you know, it's one of the concerns, you know, that I have about the delivery of your food, and I use it here uh, periodically. My wife and I will order our food online, and then it's delivered by somebody here. And uh, I'm not sure how healthy that is for us uh, as a society versus getting out and connecting and seeing somebody, you know, in the fruit and vegetable section of the grocery (laughs) store or uh, the farmer's market, which are so awesome you know, to go walk around and hang out. There actually should be a farmer's market everywhere, every day. Yeah. Uh, just so that it's less transactional and more connective. Because there's a connective tissue to those uh, to those farmer's market that you're just not going to get at the grocery store. That's exactly right. You know, Mr. Graham, we just have one minute left, and I want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with a message or a call to action. Well... What you see on our street corners and underneath our bridges and in our alleyways appears to be a hopeless situation in all of our cities. But I'm going to tell you that Community First, Mobile Loads and Fishes, through its Community First initiative, has developed a complete sense of hopefulness. But the only way to really get to understand what it is that we're doing is to come here to Austin, Texas, and see, just like Melinda did, what it is that we're doing, because the video collateral on the website, as good as that stuff may be, it's just hard to get the full context unless you're here on the ground. So my invitation to everybody is to come to Austin and check us out. I'd love to give you a tour. Well, and you have got a national model that I know others have visited and tried to replicate in their own communities as best as they can. So I think that you have created a fantastic opportunity for many of us in this country to rethink homelessness. And I really want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. And thank you, Melinda, for having me on the podcast. It's uh, been a blessing. 
Thank you. We've got to close, so I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Alan Graham, founder, president, and CEO of Mobile Loaves and Fishes. And I will make sure that we have links to your website so people can go and visit. Thank you again for your time and your truly great work. Super. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you, Melinda.